0: Good morning, everyone. So, thank you, Brother Sean. It's always a little bit of a scramble when we say, "Oh, yeah, Mr. Nelligan's not here." And everybody has their little things that they're used to doing in the morning on Sundays. And Pastor Chris isn't here, and Pastor Cole isn't here. And uh, as a matter of fact, I wanted to mention that. Uh, don't uh, whisper a little prayer if you would, as we go uh, for Mr. Die. Mr. Dye is preaching uh, at Faith, Bible, Faith Baptist Church in Springville this morning, uh, right about now. So, um, yeah, pray for him as well. It's a, I, I went over there several weeks ago and, and filled in for Pastor Friedman. And, and uh, while well, it's always a blessing to do that, it's always a little nerve-wracking to go to a church you've not been to before and, and speak. <clears throat> so so we're going to continue our lessons On increasing your faith in the Bible. We've been considering the questions, do you believe the Bible? And when I say that, as I've been saying, I mean, do you believe all of it? I don't mean little pieces of it or this or that. I mean all of it. Can you believe it? Can you trust it? Of course, I think you've learned by now, this being the third week of these lessons, that my opinion is, yes, you can. You absolutely can. Um... In week number one, we looked at Old Testament messianic prophecies and the probability that the writers of the Old Testament could have accurately predicted what they did about the Messiah without God telling them what to write. <clears throat> we looked at Old Testament prophecies that today we know about are about Jesus Christ, uh, but they were written hundreds of years before he was born. But all of those prophecies were fulfilled in him. And we learned that the probability... Uh, This is where I remember I was talking about those big numbers. Uh, I I promised Gloria I wouldn't talk numbers today, so I won't. (laughs) But we learned that the probability is so infinitely small that that could happen, that the Old Testament writers could write those things about one man, uh, that it's, in fact, inconceivable that it could happen without God supernaturally providing the information to the, the men that wrote it down. In week number two, last week, we looked at several prophecies Uh, from God, written down in 586 B.C. by Ezekiel about historical events at the city of Tyre. You might remember that if you were here last week. And we saw that each prophecy about the city of Tyre that God gave was fulfilled in history by Nebuchadnezzar, by Alexander the Great, by the Ptolemies, I didn't talk about this one, but the Romans as well, by the Muslims and the Crusaders, right after the fact that the area in, in, in Tyre, the old city of Tyre, is flat like the top of a rock today. Just like the Bible said it would be, and that fishermen used the area to hang their nets. That's what God said would happen, and in fact, it did happen. So that was some talk about prophecy. I'm going to turn from prophecy today and switch to a different, uh, two different subjects today. We're going to talk about the scientific accuracy of the Bible. And I'm going to try and do this with some examples. Probably uh, a lot of you have heard teaching or preaching on scientific accuracy of the Bible or you've read about it. And there's several examples that that people give that some are a little harder to understand than others, especially if you follow like the Institute for Creation Research. They're they're pretty in-depth studies that they give. Uh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to use the examples that are very, very familiar to everybody. I, I might use one or two that you've heard before. But I want to use some different ones just for just to show you that there's even more in the Bible that shows you that you can in fact trust it because it's scientifically accurate. So last week I I ended by sharing a testimony. uh, Really, uh, I was conveying a conversation that I had with my two brothers. I have an older brother and a younger brother. And I was uh, discussing with them shortly after I got saved, about about 22 years ago. Um, I was talking with them. And I was trying to explain to them that I was now a born again Christian, and I was sh- telling them that I believe that the King James Bible is infallible, it is without error, it is 100% correct. And I don't remember which one of my brothers said it at the time, but one of them said, Hey, wait a minute, you're, you're an engineer, you're a, you understand science. Are you saying that you no longer believe in science? And my answer was no, I still believe in real science but the Bible does talk about science falsely so-called. And I'll mention a little bit about that today. Not a lot, but some. And I told him, I said, look, I believe that God invented science and all the laws of nature that govern it. Nothing about true science conflicts with the Bible. Nothing. That's still my view 20-plus years later, after studying the Bible for 20-plus years, and studying these things around the Bible and science, and I've, I had a career in science, and I, so I understand some of the scientific principles that not everybody does. Um, and I still have that view that the Bible is, in fact, scientifically accurate. So you might say, well, well, why is that? Well, I think I mentioned last week, too, that the Bible is not primarily a book about science, so you've got to be careful with, with trying to say, well, this is the scientific principle. What we mean when we say the the Bible is scientifically accurate is that when it mentions something that is scientific, it's always correct. Now, you have to understand, as we'll go through some examples today, just quick ones, easy to understand ones, that the writers, I think in most cases, didn't even understand what they were writing down. They didn't have a full view of, as we do today. They did not understand science as well as we do today. But there's a proof here that God told them what to write. And I'll I'll help you understand that as we go. So there's these easily understood examples of scientific accuracy. And I want to start with uh, one in Job. This one might be familiar to you. Turn to the book of Job in chapter 26. Job 26. We're going to look at verse number 7. Now, we believe that Job is actually the oldest book in the Bible. I don't know if you all knew that or not. Job was written somewhere around 4,000 years ago. 4,000, that's a long time ago. <clears throat> but it was written 4,000 years ago, keep that in mind, but look at this. In, in Job 26, in verse number 7, Job is, is speaking here about God, and he says, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. So according to that verse, the earth hangs on Nothing. So I just want you to think about this for a little bit. Okay? So the educated Greeks believed that Atlas supported the earth on his back. You probably learned that when you were a kid. right? Other cultures believed that there were four great pillars holding up the earth. Still other cultures believed that it, was, that it rested on the back of a giant turtle that swam through a celestial sea. You probably also heard that before, right? So it's not like old civilizations didn't consider this. What the earth was hung upon. Everyone had the view that it had to be supported by something. Right? Why did they have that view? Well, <laughs> Job, I'm just going to use him as an example. Job, just like all the other people in history, lived on this earth in its gravitational, feet, gravitational pull. Just like we do today. We experience gravity other than the fact that you have maybe seen scientific demonstrations of magnetic fields where you can actually levitate a a ferrous piece of metal a magnetic something create a magnetic field and you can levitate something outside of that and whatever you've learned from the science of astronomy why would you think anything can hang on nothing? Who was here for VBS last week, even just for a day? Most of you, that's what I thought. Brother Korn had a couple of tricks that he did. He had a table. If you remember one night, he levitated a table. It seemed to fly around, right? He had another trick where he had a, it was a big box that was, you know, the size of like a washing machine that he levitated and he rotated it around and his wife was in it, seemingly, (laughs) Right? But what does David Korn tell you about himself and about everything that he does up here? He tells you they're illusions. Why do we find them incredible? Because we know things can't hang on nothing. Have you tried it? I I know you've all got cell phones. Hang your cell phone on nothing. I'll wait. You can't do it. So you understand that Job didn't have... Which is, somebody just dropped their phone. <laughs> Didn't work. <laughs> now go get a new screen. <laughs> Job, his experience was on Earth, just like ours. Didn't have scientific demonstrations of, of magnetic fields. Didn't have knowledge of the vacuum of space or the fact that we're, the Earth is flying through space at 1.3 million miles an hour. Didn't have that. All these other cultures believed that the Earth was supported some other way. Yet Job wrote, "He hangeth the earth upon nothing." How did he know that? Four thousand years ago. How do you know that? Simple explanation, my opinion. <laughs> I'm going to start giving you my opinion uh, on these things now. Perhaps God told him to write that down. Is that not what the Bible says happened with Scripture? God inspired it. God gave it to the men who wrote it down. The Holy Spirit inspired them to write it down. And Job simply believed that God could do anything and had faith that what God told him to write down was correct. Would that explain it? Uh, I think so. Did anybody have another explanation? I don't think so. <laughs> Not that you can come up with, or I can come up with. We certainly can't understand the mind of God, But when simple little verses like that says that that God, he hangeth the earth upon nothing, you see, the Bible was correct. It doesn't say, if the Bible had said that that the the earth rested on the back of a giant turtle that was swimming through a celestial sea, what would we say about the Bible today? Oh, no, that's not correct. But it was correct 4,000 years ago, before science ever caught up with that fact. The earth is, in fact, hung upon nothing. Simple to understand. Let's go on to another one. This one is going to be in Genesis, chapter 17. Turn there. This is another fascinating, to me, uh, scientific fact that we see in the scriptures. This isn't so much a proof, but it's one of those things that, uh, that God did that is fascinating, because when science caught up with why, it, it, it's something they didn't understand back then, and we don't actually practice exactly this way today. I'll tell you what it is in a second. So this has to do with the science of biology, but I want you to understand, this is the book of Genesis, written down by Moses thousands of years ago. Okay? What we're going to talk about is the timing of circumcision, okay? the timing of it. Now, in an adult class, I'm, not, I'm just going to assume that you know what that is. I'm, I'm not going to be describing it to you except for what the Bible says. Um, but I want you to understand something about what God wrote here. So let's start in verse 9. Genesis 17, in verse number 9. It says, And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou, and thy seed after thee, in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you, and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant." So, according to verse twelve, there, every man child. He was talking to Abraham. Now, this is the law. This doesn't apply to to us as Gentiles. This was to the to the to, to Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, covenant, if you will. That every man child should be circumcised on the eighth day. That was the law. Okay. Now, today, if you have a son and you have your son circumcised, it's done within the first day or two. Of his life. Before you go home from the hospital. That's, that's when it's done. Okay. Now, before the doctors circumcise a child today, they will give the child a vitamin K shot. They do that because vitamin K naturally helps with clotting and is vital for the stoppage of bleeding. In Abraham's time, before vitamin K shots. Okay. I don't think we're going to argue that point. right? <laughs> Abraham was instructed by God to circumcise on the eighth day. But it turns out, today we know something that we didn't know before. That is that... Uh, let's see, it's... Yeah, yeah, okay. So, today, we know that the eighth day of a child's life just happens to be the day... That a child will have the highest naturally occurring levels of vitamin K and prothrombin, which is a protein necessary for clotting in conjunction with vitamin K. Now, it's the highest levels of vitamin K and prothrombin, prothrombin that a child will have in its entire life, the eighth day of its life. Don't you find that fascinating? You find that interesting? God knew that, He made us. <laughs> and then he told Abraham, look, you're going you're gonna to circumcise all your, your men child, and that's, you're going to do it on the eighth day. Why did he do that? Well, maybe, perhaps that's why. Abraham didn't know that. Abraham was just told, it says right there in verse 9, and God said. right. So that, that's what we're coming down to here as we study all of these things. How, how, how did they know? How did they know that the eighth day was the right day? Well, And God said. That's why. Science just caught up with it later. Man just caught up with it. So those are just a couple of examples. The, the, the earth hangs on nothing and the timing of circumcision. And there's a lot of scientific facts in the Bible that are absolutely correct. But they were only proven to be correct by science hundreds or thousands of years after they were written by God in the Holy Book. I'm going I'm to run through some other examples fairly quickly. Uh, but they're fairly easy to understand. Sorry. <clears throat> um, one of the things I was telling the men earlier, I, I was awakened at 3.30 by a thunderstorm this morning. Rain was pouring in through my windows, so I got up and I closed the windows of my house. Now, I had had a conversation before I went to bed with our missionary, Justin Dye, <laughs> who told me, we were, con- we were talking about a particular subject, and he said, hey, I'm preaching on that subject today, meaning Sunday afternoon for them over at North Cebu Baptist Church. So he said, tune in, it's at 3.30 a.m. So at 3.30 as I'm closing my windows, well okay, I guess I'll tune in. So I, I got up at 3.30 this morning, that's, I'm, if I'm not totally coherent, perhaps that's why, <laughs> it could be something else I guess too. Um, but anyways, that's just an aside. So a couple of quick examples uh, of scientific accuracy of the Bible. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to, I'm going to read these verses to you. Uh, the first one is from astronomy. Again, I, I'm, not gonna, I'm going to try and stay away from the ones that you're used to hearing about. I'll give you maybe some different ones. This one, again, might be a little familiar. Jeremiah 33 and verse 22 says, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered. Okay, so remember that. Just going to finish the verse. Neither the sand of the sea measured, so I will multiply the seed of David my servant and the Levites that minister unto me. Now, this verse is about God multiplying the seed of David, okay? That's what it's about. But the example that he uses is the host of heaven, and he says that it cannot be numbered. So I want you to think, okay, the stars cannot be numbered. I don't know if you've ever stood out in the the night looking at the stars and thought, I bet I could count those. (laughs) Given enough time, maybe, maybe not. Genesis twenty-two seventeen 17 says this. After Remember the story of Abraham uh, going to Mount uh, Moriah to sacrifice uh, Isaac at God's command. After he didn't spare his son, and he took Abraham there, or, or Abraham took Isaac there, God said this. Uh, after that was over, he said, that in blessing I will bless thee, in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven. What's, what's God saying here? He's going to multiply... Abraham's descendants to the point of being innumerable like the stars of heaven the stars of heaven being something that you cannot number now that might not fascinate you uh, having just been out in the night sky right? but have you seen the new photos taken by the James Webb telescope it's a little washed out by our lights and the the the, the, um, the uh, resolution of our equipment isn't nearly what it needs to be to see the the, uh, the detail of this photo. <clears throat> this photo, um, you, you can download the full file online and you can zoom in on it and you can see some pretty fascinating things. Not that it's not fascinating in itself, but this photo was released just last month, July of 2022. I don't know if many of you follow these things. Um, now, when you read about these things on the internet, you can, you can look it up. It's really easy. Just type in James, Web, James Webb Telescope first photo. Okay, that, that will come up. So you have to sort through the nonsense about the photo peering into the past billions of years. Okay, What they're going to tell you through science, which isn't science, it's theory, that that photo, you're looking at light that's three and a half billion years old. It was generated three and a half billion years ago. I personally don't believe that. I personally believe that God created everything with age. That includes the stars and the light coming from the stars. God created them such that the light was already here so we could see it once we had the technology. So sort through that stuff, but in any case, the, the, the press release that, that, that this photo came out with said this. It says the infrared, infrared image depicts... Oh, I'm not even speaking right today. Let me get this right. Depicts thousands of previously unseen galaxies. Okay. Previously unseen means we did not know they existed until last month, July. Okay. <clears throat> not just stars, but what, what did I just say? Thousands of galaxies. What you're looking up at up there? There are a couple of stars in that photo. That's a star. Uh, that's a star. But most of what you see there are galaxies. Anybody know anything about how many stars are in galaxies? Remember, sorry, Gloria, remember we were talking about hundreds of quadrillions? Okay, and there are thousands of galaxies in that photo. Galaxies. Like the Milky Way galaxies, all the stars that make up the Milky Way. There's thousands of galaxies in, the, in that photo. <clears throat> in one image. Do you know how much of the sky that image covers? It's so small you can't even see it. That image is taken of a piece of the sky that, you know, Brother Kelly has that nice telescope that he brings sometimes, which is a pretty powerful telescope. He can't even see that with his telescope. That is a little teeny tiny piece of the sky. And the other thing that the press release talks about here is that this, this James Webb telescope can turn to any point in the sky and see things like that. Now, the thing that you can't see is is where it looks black to you. On this photo, you can zoom in and you see it ain't black. There's thousands more galaxies if you keep zooming in. So, the Bible is accurate here. The stars are innumerable. It's not, it's not even Remember we talked about the largest named number and the fact that after you get past... Sorry, I said I wasn't going to do it. Ten to a hundredth power. It, it's essentially infinite because there's no the stars are, in fact, innumerable. Just like the Bible says they are. Okay? Also, 1 Corinthians 15.41 says this, There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. Okay. Now, the men God used to write the Bible did not have telescopes, so you know. I mean, you might have guessed that. <laughs> They looked up into the night sky just like we could with a naked eye, as you and I can do today. Yes, you can see some stars that are brighter than others, right? You, uh, you can see stars that are brighter. If you have a little bit of knowledge, you know that the brightest ones—oh, well, that's actually a planet. That one's Jupiter, right? You, you know that it's not really a star. Um, with photos like like this, what you learn is some of those dots are galaxies—not the ones that we can see with our with our eyes, but so. Back in the time that this was written, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he could walk out. And remember, uh, I have a belief that one of the things that Paul had, the, the thorn in the flesh that he had, had to do with his eyes, that he couldn't see well. Okay? But, so I don't know that Paul could look up at the sky or not. Um, but when he wrote that, that, that one star differeth from another star in glory... Um, I don't believe he was just talking about the fact that one was brighter than another. Just like if you go look in the sky, that one's brighter than another. Because that could easily be explained. If I had a candle, if I would say this was a candle, and I held the candle, and we turned off all the lights, right? you could tell that that is fairly bright, and roughly how far away it is. And then if we all went, we waited till midnight, went out on the street, and I went down to, I don't know, eating seafood. (laughs) And I stood down there with my candle. You could see it at night from here but it would be dimmer from your perspective right? So just distance back then I'm sure they thought of that right? But I don't even think that's the scope of what that means that one star differeth from another in glory that that one is just brighter than another I think what it means is that the stars differ in some are so magnificent versus others and to, uh, today, I'll say it this way, science has discovered that there are different types of stars. I don't know if you all know this, there are 24 different types of stars. You've heard of white dwarfs and supergiants and red giants and red dwarfs and neutron stars, all vastly different in size. All 24, are all very, I mean, like... If You can go on the internet and check it out. I'm not going to try and describe it to you, but you look at some of the, the, the white dwarfs, for example. They're not dwarfs. They, they absolutely make our sun look like it's a little pinprick. Nothing. They're huge, just unimaginably large to us. <clears throat> and those stars have vastly different, not just sizes, but brightnesses. Some of them actually pulse. They, they do weird things. The glory differs from one star to another. Just like the Bible says. I mean, again, if the Bible said, you know, and stars are all the same or something to that effect. But it doesn't say that. It says that the stars differ one from, uh, for one star differeth from another star in glory. The Bible's accurate. See, I mean, it's not some earth-shaking fact, but it's something that there's no way Paul could have known that, other than, you know, that one's brighter than that one back in his time. But today we know one more uh, example, uh, just for time's sake, from the science of hydrology, <clears throat> uh, Ecclesiastes 1 in verse 7 says, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Now Solomon, who, who was the man God used to write that down, was the wisest man ever in the history of earth, with the exception, of course, of Jesus Christ, I'm sure, <clears throat> He was that because God made him that. God gave him that wisdom. Um, but I doubt, I don't know, but I doubt that Solomon at that time understood what we would today call the hydrologic cycle. Okay, I'm just going to throw you a description of what the hydrologic cycle is, not to baffle you, just to show you that, <laughs> that what Solomon wrote down is right. The hydrological cycle is this. It, it, it's from the arrival of water at the land... Uh, at, at the land surface as precipitation to its eventual loss from the land either by evaporation or what's called transpiration back to the atmosphere or by surface and subsurface flow to the sea. Okay, so it's the entire cycle of how water goes from wherever you want to count as the start to the sea and then back to wherever you want to count as the start. We we know it today. Well, yeah, of course, sure. Well. How did Solomon know that, the, the end of that verse, the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again? He had no way to show that, prove that. You can't mark water molecules and track, 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 trace them, right? Where did that go? But he was right. That, how, how was he right? How did he know that? Well, again, God inspired the writing of the scriptures. The men didn't necessarily understand it as they were writing it down. So many, 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 many other scientific, uh, and by scientific I mean observable things, observable evidence um, of science, uh, including a young earth, and we're not going to talk about that today. Uh, I just don't have time. That's one of the more commonly talked about things, is that the earth is not billions of years old, that... um, that the account of creation and Noah's flood or what actually happened, that's what the Bible says. I believe that. I believe there's scientific evidence that shows that. Uh, I'm not covering that today. Uh, I just want to say that the Bible is, in fact, scientifically accurate. Wherever you find something that is related to science, again, it's not a science book, but whenever it talks about science, it's always accurate. Even though they had no way of knowing back in that day when these were written. Okay? Okay. So let's change from scientific accuracy to the last few minutes here. I want to talk about the historical accuracy of the Bible. We talked last week about some historical prophecy. Remember, we talked about the city of Tyre and what God said would happen, and then we saw that it happened, right, over a couple thousand years. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about historical accuracy. Just like with science, where where there are facts in the Bible that are historic facts, they're always correct. What what would you think if the Bible had facts that we know were incorrect? You would question the Bible. But you can't, not based on historical accuracy or scientific accuracy or prophecy. You can't, because it's always accurate. So let's look at a couple examples of that. So there's literally thousands of examples of historical accuracy in the Bible. Thousands of them, right? So perhaps the most famous one is the fall of Jericho. Most of you are probably familiar with that. God told Joshua that he had delivered Jericho into his hands as they crossed into the Promised Land, and that Joshua and the the Israelites were supposed to compass the city of Jericho with the priests and the ark once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they were to compass it seven times, they were to shout, blow the trumpets, and the wall would fall down flat. Okay. Well, <clears throat> archaeology has discovered that the walls of the city fell down flat. Uh, let me read to you a little bit about that. Um, this is, again, this is uh, Josh McDowell's book, because he has lots of chapters in here with excerpts from other writings, so it's just a convenient way to not carry 15 books around, okay? Okay. <laughs> So during the excavations of Jericho, that was done from 1930 to 1936, so it was a while ago now, but uh, the archaeologist, his name was Garstang, he, he found something so startling that a statement of what was found was prepared and signed by himself and two other members of the team. In reference to these findings, Garstang says this, quote, as to the main fact then, there remains no doubt the walls fell outwards so completely that the attackers would be able to clamber up and over the ruins into the city, unquote. Why is that so unusual? Because in archaeology, walled cities, the walls don't fall outward. They always fall inward. And, and if you remember the story of Jericho, when the Israelites first went in there, there were actually houses, people living on the wall and around the wall, so when walls would fall in, they wouldn't fall flat. They would fall on top of what was right behind them. These fell out. And it was in the 1930s. They didn't have you know, photographic equipment and, and, and lots of great ways to, to document this stuff. There, I don't even know if there are any photos of this. But the point is just this. Archaeology proved that what God said to Joshua is exactly what happened. There's archaeological evidence. It exists. It exists. Okay, so there's one example. The most satisfying of proofs, though, I think, are the ones that, you know, the ones that um, were in dispute at one time. I, I love when the Bible skeptics are proven to be incorrect. I, I really like that. Um, so I got a sampling of just some of those. Um, so everything that I'm going to talk about here for the next few minutes, um, as little as 100 years ago, was once cited by scholars as errors in the Bible. So, uh, turn to Luke chapter 2, if you would. Luke chapter 2, we're just going to look at the first three verses here. In these three verses, there were three things that the uh, scholars cited to be errors in this scripture. Let me read the scripture to you first. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Okay? So the three things were that the, the, uh, the experts, the, the scholars, said that there was no Roman census at that time. They also said that the concept of people going back to the area of their ancestral home was garbage. never happened because they hadn't found any evidence of it. The third thing was that Cyrenius was not governor of Syria at that time. That's what they said. Let me tell you what archaeology he found. Okay, so it was, this is the statement in the writing. I'm just going to read it to you. I'm going to add one little piece here. It was at one time conceded, not by Bible believers, but by historians, okay, that didn't believe the Bible. It was conceded that Luke had entirely missed the boat in the events uh, he portrayed as surrounding the birth of Jesus in Luke 2, verses 1 to 3. Critics argued that there was no census, that Cyrenius was not governor of Syria at that time, and that everyone did not have to return to his ancestral home. First of all, archaeological discoveries show that the Romans had a regular enrollment of taxpayers and also held censuses every 14 years. This procedure was indeed begun under Augustus, and the first took place in either 23 to 22 B.C. or in 9 to 8 B.C. The latter would be the one that Luke is talking about. Second, we find evidence that Cyrenius was governor of Syria around 7 B.C. This assumption is based on an inscription found in Antioch. Ascribing uh, to Cyren- Cyrenius this post as a result of this finding it 's now supposed that he was governor by historians, of course, that he was governor twice, once in seven BC and the other time in six a d okay so he was governor at that time. last, in regard to the practices of enrollment, a papyrus found in Egypt gives directions for the conduct of the Roman census it reads uh, this, because of the approaching census, it is necessary that all those residing for any cause away from their homes should at once prepare to return to their own governments in order that they may complete, complete the family registration of the enrollment and that the tilled lands may retain those belonging to them. It's kind of the opposite. We look at owning land, right? They're talking about that the lands would retain the people that belong to them. Isn't that weird? <laughs> A little different thinking for us. But that's the Roman decree. They had to go back to their ancestral homes for the census. Okay? So th- there's the three things that were proven by archaeology to be incorrect. Um, I'm just going to move along faster so that I finish this up here. Um, there's a couple other arguments uh, regarding some scriptures here in the, uh, in the Bible that scholars said were incorrect. Okay, One was in Acts 18, verse... Um, no, sorry, I want to do this one first. Acts 16 and verse 20. Okay, Acts 16 and verse 20 says this. says, and brought them to the magistrates, saying, these men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. The word magistrates there that we have in our English Bible was translated from uh, the word praetor in Greek. All right? And the scholars said, nope, that is the wrong term. That was not used for the the, the, uh, Roman colony." They did not use the word praetor. It's a Greek word. So the experts insisted that Luke was incorrect in using that term, saying, oh, see, the Bible's wrong. But in fact, Luke was proven to be correct, as archaeological evidence has now shown, that the title of praetor was employed by the magistrates of that Roman colony, Philippi. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't broadly done just there. And it was proven right. Luke was right when he was he was he was using it. Also, his use of the word proconsul for the title of Gallio in Acts eighteen twelve. Acts eighteen twelve says this. And when Gallio was deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. So there, the word translated deputy in English is from the Greek word proconsul. Again, the expert said, nope, wrong term. He was not the proconsul. Well, there's some more archaeology that proves that to be the case. Luke's worst choice of the word proconsul as the title for Gallio in Acts 18.12 is correct as evidenced by the Delphi inscription which states in part as Lucius Gal- Junius Gallio, my friend, and the proconsul of Achaia. The, pro- the, the Delphi inscription was written in uh, 52 AD, and it gives us a fixed time period for establishing Paul's ministry as as uh, ministry of one and a half years in Corinth. We know this by the fact from other sources that Gallio took office in July 1st, and that his proconsulship lasted only one uh, year, and that one year overlapped Paul's work in Corinth. See, so we can we can date things now with what some of the uh, archaeologists have found. So, pretty pretty fascinating stuff. There's, there's uh, boy, I wish I had a little more time, but I'm, I'm just going to have to skip over some things here. Um, let me just give them to you. Uh, we won't be able to read the scriptures, but um, there was another, uh, quote, error in the Bible, said by scholars, where they said in Isaiah 20, where it talks about Sargon being the king of Assyria, the experts said, nope, he was never the king of Syria. For a very long time, Isaiah 20 was the sole reference to Sargon preserved in the records of the ancient world until excavations in old Assyria Assyria showed that King Sargon was a great king. Again, archaeology proving the historical accuracy of the Bible. Last one, uh, and then I'll just have to wrap it up. (laughs) Belshazzar, uh, Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. Uh, If you look up, uh, there's a man named Nabonidus who, in history, was called the last king of Babylon. In fact, he wasn't. The Bible says something different. History, at one time, only recognized Nabonidus as the last king. However, the discovery of the Nabonidus Chronicle makes it clear that Nabonidus was away on campaigns and established a dwelling in Tima. The tablet says of his son, Belshazzar, that he, Nabonidus, freed his hand. He trusted the kingship to him. Thus, Belshazzar exercised co-regency in Babylon, and the book of Daniel is absolutely correct. It also shed light on um, Daniel 5, verse 30, where a man like Daniel would be third in the kingdom. Did you ever wonder about that? Who was second? The answer is Belshazzar. Nabonidus was king. He co-regent with his son, Belshazzar, Daniel was third in the kingdom. Okay, Just sheds a little bit of light. But again, the historical accuracy is absolutely something that you can look at and say, you know what? God always gets it right. It's always correct. So yet again, it's just a small sampling from history, as recorded by the Bible, that proves the Bible is absolutely correct. Each of those things that I just said to you were questioned by Bible skeptics and historians until archaeology found evidence that proved the words of the Scriptures to be correct and accurate. So, let's go back to where we started. Can you believe the Bible? It's always correct. (laughs) It predicts things before they happen to the point that it's inconceivable that it could happen. It's scientifically accurate. It's historically accurate. Always. There are critics of the Bible, don't get me wrong, there are people out there that are going to tell you, oh, well, the Bible's not correct, but did you know that not one of them has a single hard fact that the Bible is incorrect, with regard to science, with regard to history? And then next week, what we're going to talk about, because you can't ignore this subject, is has the Bible had an effect on anyone? Because if it's a supernatural book, it ought to have an effect on somebody, right? Right? if God really wrote it. So we're going to talk about that exclusively next week. So no more, I promise, Gloria, no more numbers. (laughs) No no more science. All we're going to talk about is the effect that the Bible has had on people's lives. Okay? All right, let's pray, and I'm done. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you, uh, Lord, for these these folks that have come out. Lord, thank you for uh, this lesson. Uh, Lord, thank you that we can count on your word. Lord, that we can trust in it. Lord, thank you for giving it to us. Lord, we pray that we would... uh, Uh, be able to read it and your holy spirit would help us to understand it and 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 trust in it and just live according to it father Uh, we just thank you uh, for this day this this uh, beautiful day uh, lord's day and ask now lord that you'll bless the service to follow lord i pray that uh, lord you would continue to speak to us lord during that hour uh, lord and uh, bless our fellowship later on well thank you for it all in jesus holy name amen